Well, good evening and welcome to uh, the final of our four-part series on the time between the Old and New Testament. And so we're gonna wrap everything up together in a nice little bow and you will understand everything about the Bible after we're done tonight. So it's, it's kind of all coming together in this lesson, I think. So let me say a prayer for us and we'll dive right in. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have to gather together to study your word. Thank you for eager hearts. And I pray, Father, for, uh, that our hearts would be touched by these truths, that the context would be built around your word and that we'd come even more alive in our lives. Father, we're grateful for your blessings but you know our concerns and our cares and our griefs and our needs, and I pray for your presence to be near all those who need you. Father, I pray for our nation. I pray for the leaders of our nation that you would turn their hearts toward you. I know that you use everything in history. You are sovereign over everything that happens, but I pray, Lord, that it would be a willing sovereignty on the part of our leaders. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So, questions to that number, as always. It's on your handout. Those of you online, that number's on the handout. You can text questions during class and try to answer as many as we can. We have just been doing a fun little contextual study. A lot of history, but what I think makes this kind of history, it's useful in my view for two reasons. Number one, it does place the scripture in context. Now I know that the Bible, because it's inspired, the very nature of what does it mean to be inspired, one of the things that means is that it is, its meaning extends beyond its context. For example, if you write a real estate contract, then that is probably not a manual for how to live your life, nor is it trying to be. It's not going to be a cell phone contract. It's going to be something that addresses its context. The scriptures, are God's revelation to us through the millennia of who he is, what he's doing, and the relationship we have with him. It's helpful to understand the context, but only, in my view, in the sense that it makes it more alive. It doesn't put any boundaries around the word, it simply makes it richer in every application that we have. The second thing that I think context is good for is it reminds us that this is not a book of fairy tales. And you know, I say that a lot. And what we've been studying for the last few weeks is the history, the real geopolitical, economic, cultural, literary events into which the biblical events are woven. The biblical story claims to be happening in real history. If you read some other religions and you read some of the stories, they are perfectly good whether or not they're grounded in real history or not. They're just stories with a moral. Well, the Bible is more than stories with a moral. It's embedded into real human lives and real human history. And so what we've been doing is building context. So I wanna give you a brief recap, but really more to make sense of what's happening. So we have used the, uh, the way we wanted to look at those 400 years is geopolitically. In other words, we basically let the kingdoms that were ruling the world through that 400 year period be our roadmap. And one of the reasons for that is that's what God does. If you remember Daniel and he has this, uh, he interprets a dream that uh, 
the Pharaoh has, and he says, this is what God says is going to happen. There are going to be four great kingdoms, and then God's Messiah, his anointed one, uh, a kingdom God himself will establish that will never end, is going to come. And so he answers Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't care about what's gonna happen in the next 400 years, but God gave him that roadmap so that God's people would know. Well, the first kingdom were the Babylonians. And you notice this part of the world, which extends all the way east to India over here. Uh, obviously, you see the Caspian Sea all the way over to the west into what's modern day Turkey over here. But the Babylonians who are Iraqis, I mean, that's what it is today is uh, Iraq. Their uh, capital city is Babylon. And that is near modern day Baghdad. Well, the Babylonians had just conquered the Assyrian Empire at the Battle of Carchemish in 609 BC, if memory serves. And so they moved on south into the land of Israel. At that time, think Judah, but into the land of Israel. And eventually at 586 BC, because of various geopolitical issues and economic issues, they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple that Solomon had built 300 years earlier. That temple had been standing for 300 years. And they deport all the people, most of the people, and they take them to Babylon. And this is called an exile. And so the Jewish people saw themselves as being taken from their home and sent away to exile. They didn't see Babylon as necessarily the one driving this, even though the Babylonian army and King Nebuchadnezzar were certainly the agents of it. They're the ones that conquered Jerusalem and took them away. They understood it to be that God had been warning them for over 150 years that through the prophets, that if they did not turn back to God, they would suffer the consequences of living life like everyone else. And so they thought they had forfeited God's protection and consequently the Babylonians were simply the natural consequence of being unfaithful to God. But this idea of exile is a firm idea in Jewish history and there's a reason for it. But, so the Babylonians rule for a little while until in 539 the uh, Persians Medes and the Persians, but we're just gonna say Persians. The Persians overthrow the Babylonians who since Nebuchadnezzar in 586, his kids, his descendants got to be progressively worse leaders, progressively worse generals. And by 539, the person sitting on the throne is having a feast while the city's being overthrown. So a complete lack of direction from the top, and so the Persians conquer it. Well, the Persians, they have a different philosophy. They said to the Jews, hey, you guys go on home. I think you'll pay higher taxes if you're living on your own land and you're tilling your own fields and you love this land and you want this land and I'm gonna give you peace and I think you'll pay more taxes and it'll be more financially stable for the Persian Empire if we let you go farm your own land. So it's a different philosophy of how to rule an empire. But what did that effectively, what effectively happened? Well, you have the idea of exile, now you have the idea of return. 
And with this return, it was physical return. They were, obviously, they left exile, many of them, and went back and they rebuilt, Nehemiah rebuilds the walls around Jerusalem and Ezra kind of refurbishes the temple a little. It's, it's pathetic, but it's at least it functions and they can do sacrifices there. And so they physically come back, but if you've read the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, they also spiritually come back to God. So I wanna stop here and I wanna say it's the first two kingdoms, so we're kind of marching on our way down through this vision, down through history, through these geopolitical entities. But the first two basically accomplished a key idea. From where you and I sit, we look back and we can evaluate what was God doing? Probably many things, but one big thing with the Babylonians and the Persians. Effectively, what happened was this motif of faithfulness. As you turn away from God, the consequences of that are judgment, uh, punishment, uh, conquest. They got conquered. They were relying on their own strength, and obviously it wasn't enough to defeat the Babylonians. And so they just, the world happened to them. Their God wasn't there for them because they had turned away from God. It's very reminiscent of Romans chapter one, which is talking about our era. In Romans chapter one, three times, as Paul's writing to the Christians at the time, he says that because human beings worshiped idols instead of God, what does that mean? They turned away from God and placed their trust in other things. Three times it said he gave them over to futility of their thoughts, to their idols, to their debased minds. And anyway, Romans chapter one is basically God saying, look, if you aren't gonna serve me and you wanna go your own way, sometimes God's punishment is this simple. I'll let you go your own way. Well, you can look at it this way, historically speaking, because the kings who were conquered by Babylon thought they had a plan. They had a, I mean, they had a treaty with Egypt, Egypt promised they would come and rescue them. Needless to say, treaties are worth nothing. Egypt never showed up and so they got conquered. In other words, they were left to their own devices and it wasn't sufficient. But then God inter interferes because Jeremiah had said, but God will bring you back. And so sure enough, here come the Persians. Nobody saw that coming. And they said, you can go back. And all of a sudden the Jews go, man, this happened exactly the way God said it was gonna happen. We were unfaithful. He said that we would pay the price for that. We did, but he said that he still loves us and he would bring us back, and he did. And so you get this spiritual revitalization along with a physical revitalization. This is a foretaste, it's called an archetype of the gospel. If you want to think about the gospel of Jesus Christ this way, you can, and it's a good way to think about it. We have all been led into exile, out of the presence of God. Why, did he kick us out? Oh, heavens no, we left. We, you know, think about Romans once again. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. All like sheep have gone astray. These are all quotes in the Bible talking about we left God just like they did. And so here we find ourselves in exile 
in bondage to sin. And so then what happens? God still loves us. He's still faithful. Jesus Christ comes and leads us out of exile. And the big question is, will you follow him or do you want to stay a slave to sin? That's the gospel in a nutshell. Do you believe him? Well, follow him because he's going to take you to freedom. And so these first two kingdoms are playing out. God is preparing the world in terms of ideas for what the gospel is going to be. It is a return from a self-imposed exile. Okay? So that's kind of what's happening in those first two kingdoms. Third kingdom is Alexander the Great. So think of Alexander the Great. So the Persian kingdom, a little over 200 years. Alexander's born in 356, dies in 323. So think in this part of the world, think about 332, 331 BC. He conquers this part of the world. He dies young, splits up into his four generals, and, but basically now from in, in Israel is conquered 331. So from 331 all the way to 63 BC, so well over 250 years, Greeks ruled the world. And the importance of what happened with the Greeks is the idea of bringing Greek culture and Greek civilization and Greek language to the world. You could think about it a little bit like the phenomenon of America, the United States of America over the past 80 years or so. With our economic prosperity came cultural influence around the world. And so we exported MTV. That's why everyone hates us. We exported MTV. We, uh, you know, our, the dollar is what people benchmark their currencies against, etc. People want to be like Americans. We have a lot of cultural influence. If you learn a second language in many parts of the world, the second language would be English because it will help you. So think about it just, and again, I'm not trying to brag on America so much. I'm just saying this is a historical phenomenon. And that's what happened with the Greeks, only very intentionally so. Well, our Jewish brothers and sisters are sitting right here in the middle of a war zone because you have the Ptolemies, that empire in the south, and you have the Seleucids in the north. And so basically everybody's moving through there. Trade is moving through there and armies are moving through there. But one of the interesting things about the Jews is they were never an important people group politically economically or militarily. In other words, they were, you know, they just were not one of the countries that were international power players. Not since the time of Solomon, 900 BC, was, were they a, a, an international influence. And so you think to yourself, that best they ought to be a footnote in a history book. You know, oh, and the Jews also lived in this area. You know, that's, what should be happening, and yet their influence is hugely outsized. I mean, they have way more influence in history, and part of it is where God placed them. Now, they would say, terrible real estate, no oil, and everybody comes through here wanting to conquer somebody. But effectively, for God's purpose, it let the story of the Jews' God and the story of the Jews get out to basically all the world. 
And so the Greeks bring the language and uh, then we talked about how the Jews threw the Greek rule off for a little while. So think about 164, we talked about the Maccabees, until 63 BC when the Romans show up. They have their own kingdom. And so they rule it themselves. And this is a very much a gloss, it's way more complicated than that. But they basically ruled themselves for a certain period of time. This was important. You think, well, this isn't part of of Daniel's big vision of the four great empires. This is not one of them. This isn't an empire. I mean, they were less than 100 years where they were ruling themselves. But you know what? This taught the Jews two important things. First of all, it taught them that it gave them a little foretaste of what the Messiah might do. It said, look, we're not just pawns being floating on the currents of history and the Babylonians do to us what they want and the Persians do to us what they want and the Greeks do to us what they want. Yes, those kingdoms were more powerful, but what did that teach them? It taught them that, you know what? Despite all of the odds, our God, because they thought that God was in that battle. They knew that there was no way militarily they should have been able to defeat the Greeks. I mean, it's not even close. It's very much like the War of Independence uh, in the 1940s, right after Israel declared independence and then five armies invaded them. Even today, even Jews that don't believe in God will tell you God did that. I mean, it's just so improbable. So they basically kind of got a little foretaste of what could it be like? Because it would be easy to stop believing in the Messiah after you've been ping-ponged, right, between all these empires. And maybe you feel that way in your life. Sometimes it's easy to stop believing in God's power in our life because I feel like, you know, I've just been knocked here and I've knocked there and there are forces beyond my control directing my life and pushing me here and there. This was a little foretaste and a reminder to the Jews that God can overcome what looked like impossible odds. And sure enough, it actually happened. So then come the Romans. So let's do a little history of this because it's kind of interesting. So we'll pick it up in the time of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar is important uh, for a lot of reasons, but one reason is he is the first emperor of Rome. Rome was a republic. Uh, the United States is a republic. I mean, a little different system, but they had senators. Uh, they, they basically had a system where the proconsuls who were they were like, think of them as kind of like presidents. You know, they would have a term of office and the Senate would appoint them. I mean, it wasn't a democracy, if you will, but it was a republic. The, theoretically, the people's will was being expressed through the senators and the, and the ruling body. So they at least had a body that the leader was accountable to. That's why it wasn't an empire where you've got an emperor does pretty much what the emperor wants to do. So the Senate was a check on the rule and the proconsuls or the consuls were uh, subject to the Senate's removal or uh, appointment. Well, that changed in the time of Julius Caesar. So in the time of Julius Caesar, they realized they were getting big enough and you can see that how much of the world on this map gets conquered by the Romans. They realized that they were getting big enough that that system was not gonna hold the ambition of the people coming up. 
Because when you've got a big kingdom like that, it may sound like ruling half of that as a consul is a great thing, but people that wanna do that are like, well, you know what would be even greater? If I ruled the whole thing. And you know what would be even greater than that? If that pesky Senate wasn't trying to tell me what to do. So that's what's happening. And so you've got two great generals. So you have Caesar and he takes off. And by the way, if you're gonna conquer Rome, you need troops and you need money. By the way, this is still true today. Think about the war in Ukraine and Russia. This is actually at the moment less a military conflict than it is a supply and economic conflict. Same was true then. So what did Caesar do? He goes out to uh, France, which was called Gaul. And some of you may, maybe in, uh, if you took Latin class, you had to translate it or maybe you read it, but he wrote about his exploits called uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars. And that's a piece of propaganda. And that was Caesar writing, here I am in France and it's very pretty. The wines are outstanding. Oh, and did I mention that I conquered these people and now everyone thinks Rome is great. I am so awesome. So it was sort of like, you know, it's sort of like Instagram of that era. So he writes this piece telling how great he is. He's building up troops and he is taxing the devil out of all these people and he's getting a big war chest. What's he doing with his war chest? He's hiring people back in Rome to stir up support for Caesar. By the way, we do the exact same thing today. Anybody familiar what the idea is of a social media influencer? A social media influencer is someone that has a few hundred thousand, preferably a million or more followers, and you pay them to say good stuff about your company or about your product or about you. That's the way it works. Well, it worked that way in those days too. So he's paying money for getting people to talk about him. He's bribing people, he's making loans. In other words, he's trying to make a power move. Well, his rival was a guy named Pompey. And so Pompey was a rival general and he was conquering in this part of the world. So he and, uh, so he, by the way, in 63 BC, he comes rolling in and conquers this area of Jerusalem on his way to something that's much, much more profitable and that would be Egypt. But Pompey is another general and he's a rival of Caesar. And so he's raising armies in the east and he's getting money out of the east, out of trade and out of taxation and so forth. And they're about to duke it out. And this is kind of gonna change things. And the Senate, oh, the Senate's just dithering, like, oh my gosh, you guys need to listen to us. We're the real power here. Yeah, no, they're not. But anyway, so Caesar and Pompey have a struggle, and I'll just shorten this a little bit. It's really interesting, but I'll, I'll leave the details out. Bottom line, Caesar wins. Caesar goes back to Rome, and the Senate is furious. The people love him. But when he goes back to Rome, the Senate is furious. They're furious because they think he has far too much power, but they still have to put on a triumph for him, a big old march him through uh, Rome because the people think he's wonderful and you know, award him honors and vote him the Congressional Medal of Honor and you know, all that kind of stuff, right? So they do all of those things for him, but they think he's getting too big for his britches and they think that he's going to declare himself king. 
So you notice that he dies in 44 BC and you probably know the way he died, but effectively several of the senators got so angry that he was going to do away with their ancient, ancient form of government that they stabbed him broad daylight on the way to a Senate meeting and they just you know, overcame him and stabbed him and Brutus and Cassius and some other famous people, but basically they killed him, they murdered him. And so they thought they were doing the right thing for Rome, but they also realized that, oh, they'll probably hang us, so they fled. And they decided that, you know what, we better raise an army because at the end of the day, even though we did the right thing, we're gonna need an army in order to restore the Republic to Rome, to restore the rule of the Senate. Well, you probably remember because of Julius Caesar's memorializing, being memorialized by Shakespeare, is one of Julius Caesar's generals named Mark Antony makes this great speech, right? Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come here uh, not to praise Caesar, but to bury Caesar. Smart little move. I'm sure he didn't say it, but Shakespeare was a good speech writer. And so, but he basically stirred up support saying, wait a minute, Caesar was awesome and these guys murdered him and he, they, he starts spreading rumors that they're gonna take control. So by the way, why am I telling you all this? You could be reading this on the front page of the papers today. My point is nothing has changed. Nothing has changed historically. People are still the same. Everything is still the same. Technology's different, but people are the same. So anyway, so Mark Antony and Caesar's nephew, whose name is Octavian, they start gathering armor, uh, armies and they go fight those rebels and they win. And so now Antony, Mark Antony and uh, Octavian are the two consuls and they are ruling. And so Antony goes to the east. So he's now out at, uh, in Egypt and Octavian goes to the west and they start raising their armies. This is where you kind of enter into really popular history. So while Antony is in Egypt, he falls in love with Cleopatra. Cleopatra is the last of the Ptolemies. So she is a Greek Egyptian descendant of those Greeks. And so they fall in love together and they decide they're gonna rule the world together. They're just gonna get rid of this punk Octavian. Octavian's like 22 and Mark Antony's 39-ish or something like that. So they're gonna get rid of this punk and they're gonna rule the world together. It's a good plan, it just didn't work. And because Octavian defeated them and then Octavian becomes the sole ruler of the world. Julius Caesar was the first emperor, first sole ruler for a very short period of time before he got stabbed to death. But then Octavian becomes the emperor. He dissolves the Senate and says, enough of this nonsense, I'm the guy in charge. They uh, name him Augustus, which is a name that you would give someone that was a god. And so this is when Roman emperors started thinking of themselves as more than mere human that they had been put here by God, they were destined to be here by God, and in fact, they probably were one of the many gods that they worship. 
And so Augustus began that and he began the empire. So this is the politics and what happens, but the turning point is when they went through all that turmoil from the time of Julius Caesar to the time of Augustus, Octavian, that was a time of discontent. But from the time that Octavian, Augustus, takes uh, the empire of Rome, you have 200 years of peace. Unbelievable. And at the fringes of the Roman empire, there would be border skirmishes and little battles to get the Germanic tribes back on their side of the river and, and things like that. But fundamentally, it's peaceful. I don't know that we've had 200 years of peace in the world since then, but they were so powerful that no one could challenge them. There weren't any Persian empire coming along to try to overthrow them or a Greek empire trying to overthrow them. They uh, did what the tech companies did in the last century in America. They saw potential rivals early and snuffed them out. The Romans were really good at seeing those guys could be really good someday. We better kill them while they're still small. And they were very effective. Now, I'm not telling you they're nice. And I'm not telling you they're just. But I am telling you they were very effective. And so the world was peaceful. It's called the Pax Romana. I mean, it's so famous it has a name. A 200-year period of peace. And so for all that drama, what ended up happening was probably the most stable couple hundred years a period in human history. Questions? Well, this is going back a little bit. Yeah. But um, when Persia conquered Babylon, how did things change? And how long did the Persians hold on to Babylon? In other words, what was the result of, of conquering the Babylonians? Good question. So the Babylonians, the easiest way to think about it is Babylonians are like Iraq the Persians are Iran, two ethnically different people. That's still true today. You say, oh, but Terry, they're all Muslims. Yes, but they fought like a 10-year war against each other, you know, with chemical weapons, etc. There's bad blood there. And so you've got ethnically different group of people. And so they come with very different backgrounds. So in uh, the Babylonians are conquered in 539 BC by the Persians and the Persians rule till, I'm just gonna pick 331 BC. So about 200 years. What difference did it make? Their governing style was radically different. I'm gonna give you this simply by way of analogy. Imagine living in North Korea versus living in Canada. Okay, just take America out of it. You'd say, well, their governing philosophy are very different, right? Babylon was like North Korea, very command and control type of an environment. And uh, Persia was like Canada. Okay, that one's gonna come back to haunt me. But anyway, <laughs> Persia's more like Canada, like a little more, hey, you know, do what you want, eh? You know, so it's a little more loosey-goosey kind of a thing. And so for the Jews, that was a really good thing for the Persians to come in. So about 200 years of Persian rule and that return from exile is a big deal. Okay, we'll come back to that Iran and Canada comparison. <laughs> Was there overlap between Jewish independence and the Roman Empire? 
Yes, was there overlap between, yeah, I really made that whole little Hasmonean period, you know, the Maccabees and all, I just really oversimplified it. It, it reads like a combination of a political history and desperate housewives. I mean, it is the biggest bunch of drama you will ever see. But yes, they overlapped a little bit, but for, for my story, it's not essential. But that's a great question. There, it is a much more complicated time than I made it to sound. But that's basically what happened. Well, let's go back now to Israel. What happens to Israel, which by this time is being called Samaria and Judea. Well, Octavian takes over and he's ruling the whole empire and there's a, a power vacuum. In other words, he's gotta get his people running all these provinces. And so he's starting to assign Roman governors, proconsuls, some of the people out of the senatorial class, the aristocrats, he would send them out, but he would relieve people and put his loyal people there. And so he's trying to find a way to do it. Why? Because war's expensive, he needs to refill the treasury. So he needs people running the Roman Empire that number one, will keep order. He wants peace. Peace is good for business, war's bad for business, if you're the Romans. So he wants peace and he wants taxation. He wants to profit from these, uh, all this whole Roman Empire, he wants to profit from it. Well, needless to say, this area of Judea or Israel is not number one on his list. And so an enterprising young soldier, he was a general in the Hasmonean army named Herod. Well, he unfortunately supported Mark Antony. And so he's a wanted man because what do you do with Mark Antony's people? You kill them. That's just the way the world worked. Still the way the world works in many parts of the world today. But you, so you would kill them. But Herod, I'll just tell you this story. This is the story of Herod, and it may even be historically true, but it worked out the way I'm about to tell you. So Herod decides he's gonna go see Octavian. And so he goes to see Octavian, and he goes walking in and he said, hey, I'm Herod. And Octavian said, yeah, I'm so glad you're here. I've been looking for you because we're trying to kill you. I wanna thank you for making this easy. And Herod says, I know. But before you kill me, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about how loyal I was to Antony. And that's a noble quality and Romans appreciate that. And I also, by the way, I happen to bring the profit and loss statement, the balance sheet from how much money I was giving to Antony from this area. If I could be that loyal and that profitable to him, I could be that loyal and profitable to you. And he had a silver tongue. Uh, and so he, Octavian never trusted him, but he said, you know what? You got a deal. You go run the place and you kick back this kind of money and you're my guy. Take some Roman soldiers with you. And so what does he do? He goes and he kills anybody who is related to the Hasmonean rulers the ones that ruled the Jews, the Maccabees and then their family and there's still some Jewish royalty around, kills them all, doesn't want any claims against him. There's a little uprising. Why is there an uprising? Because Herod told Octavian he was a Jew. He said, the Jews love me. I'm a Jew's Jew. 
In fact, I'm a, I'm a great Jew. And Octavian said, good, because we don't understand those people. Well, he goes back and the Jews go, you're not a Jew, you're an Idumean from the South. You guys aren't even good Jews and we know you, you don't even go to church, you know? So he gets a, a rebellion. And so he brutally represses the rebellion. So he becomes Herod, the king of Judea. And it's a very unsettled situation because he knows that if they could, his servants, his, uh, his people would overthrow him. And so then you get into the story of Herod and how really brutal he was, how much he oppressed the people. A, he needed the money, and secondly, he couldn't give them time to think because they might rebel against him and succeed. And so he was very paranoid. He was very smart though. He, he really kicked a lot of money out of, out of that area. And so it's into this time that Jesus is born. And so two questions, but the first one is, why is Jesus born here? Out of all the places Jesus could be born, why here? Well, we know why God put the Jews there because even though it wasn't a position of power, it was a huge position of cultural influence. You don't have to be the president. In fact, one of the lessons we probably need to learn as Christians today is you don't have to be in the government to influence the culture. That there are better places to influence the culture than government. Well, that's what the Jews did through all those centuries. They influenced people with the stories of their God and how great their God was and what their God had done. The whole world knew the stories of the Jews because pretty much the whole world has tramped through their neighborhood at some time in history. And so they were very influential. And that's a great lesson for us is being at the crux of events. You don't have to be in charge of events to affect the culture. You just need to be in the place that God put you. And so God used these people, the Jews, and this place to affect the world. Jesus being born here, believe it or not, was probably a better place to communicate to the world even than Rome. Because where the, I mean, we call it the Middle East. The reason we call it the Middle East is you've got India and China in the Far East, right? And you've got uh, Turkey and all of that in the Near East. But fundamentally, they're sitting in the center of the known world at the time. And so it's actually not a bad place to disseminate information. Now, nothing else is good here. So I want you to remember that the Romans have provided peace, but they are just brutal. I mean, they just, they're not nice. And they, they're not where you would wanna live. It's not a free country. Herod is not really looking out for the average Jewish man or woman. I mean, he's really an oppressive, egomaniacal dictator. And yet, it's into that circumstance that God brings Jesus. So historically speaking, why? Given that you don't have good political, you don't have good rulers, you don't uh, really have a godly culture by any means. I mean, Christianity came into the midst of unbelievably pagan world. Kind of like where we're getting to. We're pretty quickly gonna be Christians in an unbelievably pagan world, which I think is good uh, because watch this story. Look how Christianity performed in a pagan world. It exploded in a pagan world, and I believe that we will too. 
but you had Persia let the Jews come back. Alexander brought a common language and common cultural ideas to the whole world. If you spoke with certain Greek ideas, everybody in the world was familiar with it. One of the accusations, by the way, about the Apostle Paul is if you're a liberal scholar, you read his work and you can find Stoic ideas. So that's a Greek and, and Roman philosophy that's kind of making a resurgence. And you can find quotes from a couple of Greek poets in there. You can find ideas that they would look at and say, oh my gosh, he borrowed from the culture around him. He didn't borrow from the culture around him. He built on the culture around him. God made those ideas worldwide so that when the Apostle Paul came, he said, let me explain this to you in terms you understand. And he didn't have to say, okay, well, you're Turks. I'm gonna have to explain the gospel one way to you. Oh my goodness, you guys are Carpathians. Oh, I guess I'll have to explain the gospel in another way to you. No, write it in Greek and base it on certain key ideas people have in their head and refer to the Jewish story, which the whole world knows. Do you see what I'm saying here? This is a bigger deal than you would probably think. God has prepared the world to explain the gospel. What do I mean by that? The gospel is a real event, something that happened both physically and spiritually, cosmically in the world. Well, then how do you tell people about it? How do you tell people, what does this mean? What is this crucifixion, this resurrection? Like, oh yeah, that's interesting, that's awesome. Huh, did you hear? Man got resurrected in Judea. It's way more than that. You've got to explain to people, what does this mean? This is good news for you, wherever you live. Well, how are you going to explain that to people? Well, you need a common language and you need some common ideas that they would understand. And if you think about it, God has prepared the world with the, uh, some Greek ideas, the Jewish history, the Greek language, and now finally the Romans come along and for all the evil stuff they do, they build first class interstate system. I mean, they build first class roads everywhere. Why do they do that? Commerce. You need good communications to be able to rule this empire and you need good roads with you know 18 wheelers bringing all that loot back to Rome, right? And so they have great travel and they have great communications and they have peace. You can travel anywhere in the Roman Empire without fear of wandering into a civil war or a war zone. This is an unprecedented time in history. I mean, even today, you couldn't, you couldn't say that today. You couldn't write the four gospels in any language that pretty much anybody anywhere is gonna be able to understand. You couldn't write it in certain ideas that even everybody in America would share as common cultural ideas. This was a unique time in history that God had orchestrated. Okay, that's getting preachy, so let's move on. So now, why now? Why then? And there are several thoughts that I just wanna pass on to you about that. God didn't need a just society to spread the gospel. He just needed a stable society. And I want you to let that sink in a little bit because the Roman Empire wasn't just, but it did have stability. 
and that's all God needed. So all of the early evangelists, the initial 12 and all of the, the disciples, they scattered, they could travel anywhere they wanted. You didn't need a visa, you didn't need a passport, you, you, you didn't even have to be a citizen, but you could go anywhere you wanted in the Roman Empire. There were no boundaries where you had to go through customs. It was all one big old empire. And you were not gonna run into the middle of a war, try to get through Ukraine to get to Russia. Nothing, nothing like that's happening here. So what God needed for the gospel, what he wanted for the gospel was a stable society, not a just society. And I'll give you a great example of that today. You're probably familiar with how fast the uh, gospel is growing in China, how fast the gospel is growing in the Southern Hemisphere. There are very few just governments in any of those places, certainly not China. And yet, they provided enough stability for the gospel to spread. So it's not like God wants you know, utopia before the gospel can take off. So the Romans were sufficient. Now, were the Romans good people? No. Are they gonna be judged by God? Absolutely. And yet God used the peace that they presented to do it. So the stable society, not a just society. The second thing I want you to think about is every one of these empires that served God's purpose unwittingly, I mean, it's not like they were trying to serve God's purpose, but they did, didn't they? Everything here is orchestrated. God said, this is what's gonna happen, that's what happened, and sure enough, it led to the perfect time and perfect place for the gospel to explode, and so it did. Every one of those empires was judged for what they did. It's not like God said, hey, you did me a favor, uh, appreciate you Persians letting the Jews go back, so I'm gonna give you a pass on all the murders, no. They also got judged in the world scheme, didn't they? And so Rome comes in, and Rome's got nothing to, uh, to, to appeal to themselves. I mean, they, they're just unjust. They're brutal. They're rapacious. But they're just really good at being tyrants. God used that. But if you stop and think about this, by the year 313, so think a couple centuries, right? The Roman Empire is going to be Christian and nobody's gonna lift uh, a gun. Nobody's gonna take out a sword. Nobody's gonna have a rebellion. The Roman Empire also got judged and was found wanting. Do you remember the story? This has just happened over and over, but you probably remember the story. Blake told this story in the first week. But in the first kingdom, Babylon, 539, so the king is sitting there and he sees this handwriting on the wall. Do you remember this story? This happened in 539 BC, Daniel was there. Handwriting on the wall. It's in a language they can't read, it's in Hebrew. And so they call for Daniel, Daniel comes in. King says, I'll give you anything if you'll translate this for me and tell me what it means. He says, you don't have to give me anything because this says you're gonna die. I'll translate that for free because I don't like you. You know, and so that's basically what he says. And he says, you've been weighed in the balance and you've been found lacking. And now you're going to be given what you had, what you thought you were king of is gonna be given to somebody else. Well, that happened with the Persians, happened with the Greeks, happened with the Romans, and then the Romans too were weighed in the balance and found wanting. 
And so, but the difference with the Romans is that they were conquered by a kingdom that will never go away. And I want you to think about how just, you should walk out of here thinking God is way more brilliant than I ever, ever knew he was. Because the Roman Empire wasn't overthrown by yet another empire coming in and conquering them. Yes, I know about the Vandals and all of that, but Rome was fundamentally conquered by Christians who never fought a battle. Just completely, uh, the gospel just exploded like Jesus said. Remember when he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a little bit of yeast that you put into a big lump of dough? That is exactly historically what happened to the Roman Empire. And so they too get judged, but in a different way. It's not just the age old dog eat dog, one person kills the next and then eventually somebody stronger kills them and somebody stronger kills them. Rome's gone, Persia's gone, Greece is gone and the gospel is still here and will never be extinguished. That's what the, the prophecy of Daniel was about the kingdom that's not made by human hands and that would never be overthrown. And so in this 400 year period, God architected history, which leads me to the last thing that I wanna tell you about because I think this should be really encouraging. First, it's always encouraging to me, sitting in the times in which we live and looking at it and thinking, man, the world's a mess and people are not nice and bad guys sometimes win and you know, just life, right? You just look around the world, you think, man, this is not a very righteous or just place. But then you look back at history and you go, that was even less righteous and less just place. And God worked his will in that time. And he cared for his people and we overcame. When you can look historically at that and you realize that God worked through that, he can definitely work through this. And so let's, but I don't mean work through this as in he's gonna take care of me. I really want you to think more work through this is when I join his team, we win. Our team wins. And this is gonna go exactly the way God wants it to go. And here's where I wanna distinguish between two theological ideas. One is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, and this is true. True as it can be, it's all over the scripture. God's sovereignty means that God really is king of the universe. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and he rules this world. Even though Nebuchadnezzar thought he ruled the world, and Cyrus thought he ruled the world, and Augustus thought he ruled the world, God is really the one architecting all of history. Well, this little series, I hope you can see that, yep, pretty much true. From our vantage point, we can now look back and go, you guys all thought you were building an empire that would last forever. God told you what he was gonna do, and he architected it just the way he said. He is sovereign. He has the power. Say, that's true, and that's encouraging. That's really good to know. A second idea, though, because it goes further than that, because a sovereign God who doesn't love you is a tyrant, and a God who loves you but isn't sovereign is a wimp. That's not the theological term, but that's what's happening, right? God loves you, but he's not sovereign. Good luck, you know. But when you put those two together, this is the way I wanna explain this theological idea, is the providence of God. 
the it comes from the word provide. So the providing of God. He isn't just king, and he isn't just cheering from the sidelines because you're his favorite child, right? He loves you and he's sovereign. And now you get what's called the providence of God. And that is God's presence, his caring for you, his architecting even your life has meaning. Because one of the things you can do when you look at this is say, you're right, we as a church and God in history has meaning. But what about Terry's nine to five, 70 years on this earth kind of a life? Do I mean anything or am I just a cog in the wheel? Well, with a sovereign God who's only sovereign, you probably are a cog. With a loving God, you're a favored grandchild, but you know, the, the, nothing, God can't do anything for you. But God is provident. And that means he's not only architecting all of history, but he loves you and is able to also guide and care for and comfort and be with you. That's why Jesus in the Great Commission says to them, I want you to go into all the world, I want you to make disciples of all the nation, I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to do everything I have told you, and I will be with you till the end of time. That's the providence of God. So God didn't just set this 400-year plan in motion and kick back and say, kids, see you later, good luck, it isn't gonna be fun, and hope you guys survive, right? But he also wasn't there wringing his hand saying, what can I do for you? It's more of the two of those things together, the love of God and the sovereignty of God should give you great assurance that God knows where you are God is interested in your life, and as you follow him, he not only will rule, he will provide for you. And so I really like the idea, and I'd like you to think about uh, God's love, of course. That's amazing. God's sovereignty, that's reassuring. But God's providence is personal. That just means he loves you too, and you matter. And so out of this 400 years of history, you learn some big cosmic lessons, but I really like to bring it home to you see God's providence. And God is able to navigate us through what's going on now. Because don't kid yourself, God's still architecting history. All the things that are happening in the world today, I know that there are men and women who think that they are pulling the strings of events, but God is really bending history to go where he wants it to go. I know you hear this sometimes and it usually gets directed at Christians when, when the world thinks you're on the wrong side of a social issue is the idea that you are on the wrong side of history. Let me assure you, you are on the right side of history because you are on the right person in history. God is the one who architects all of history. And if you stay with him, you're definitely on the right side of history, okay? Well, I hope this has been useful to you and it's built the context because now we're gonna go into the deep end. So what I wanna do when we kick back off, I want you to remember this, now we're gonna go into the New Testament. Now you know the era, you know what's happened up to that time and on August 23rd is when we restart Wednesday services here. So on August 23rd, I wanna talk about the letter to the Ephesian Christians. This is a fascinating letter. So this letter starts out 
by talking about predestination. And I really want to ask the question. I want you to have an open mind. Should we believe in predestination? Is that what the Bible teaches? Because Ephesians is going to talk about it. Should we have denominations? Because Ephesians is going to talk about that. It's going to talk about unity. Ephesians is going to talk about civil rights. Where should you stand on civil rights? It's going to talk about gender roles, which are forbidden words. But this letter is written to early Christians to give them guidance on how do Christians think about these things? What does Jesus say about these things to us? And then finally, is the devil actually real? And what is he actually up to today? So I'm not making these up. This is a map of what he talks to the Ephesian Christians about. And I just thought you might also be interested in those answers. So that's what we're gonna do on the 23rd. Thank you guys very much.